Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to first and foremost say thanks to all of you, to all of you who listen, who share this podcast, who share the word of the mission that the Lincoln Project is on about preserving and protecting American democracy. Those of you that voted, those of you that donated, those of you that knocked on doors, made phone calls, sent text messages, I cannot say thank you enough. It is only because of folks like you that any of this is possible. I cannot wait to see where this next adventure takes us. I know it will be a hard slog, but I know that together we'll have another good night like we did last night. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Rick Wilson, my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, author of the New York Times bestsellers, Running Against the Devil, and Everything Trump Touches Dies, and host of the brand new, top-charted podcast, Rick Wilson's The Enemies List. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Reed, how are you? Well, man, I'm tired. I'll tell you that. I feel that, brother. So we are recording this the Wednesday afternoon after Election Day. And to say, Rick, that it was a monumental night that has frankly not ended, I think would be an understatement. We have often said, you know, going into 2022, that a first term president has picked up seats in the House or Senate only three times in 122 years. The last time was 2002. Now, it's a very good chance that Biden will not actually pick up seats. But I think that's missing the broader point, which is one, as we record this, the Democrats have picked up a Senate seat in Pennsylvania. They are on the precipice of holding a Senate seat in Arizona. There's another one, as we record, that is too close to call. They're still counting half a million ballots in Nevada. And a fourth, actually, that will go to runoff in Georgia, being Senator Raphael Warnock against Herschel Walker. In the United States House of Representatives, it was supposed to be, you know, part of what was the red wave, you know, and the Republicans were calling it a red wave mixed with this red mirage, right? That was this whole thing about building up so they could say that they lost because they were cheated. It now looks like that Kevin McCarthy, whose speech was underwhelming, to say the least, at two o'clock this morning as we're recording, there could be a majority for the Republicans, could be, of four, five seats. And, you know, from our perspective and the things, then we'll talk a little bit about this, the races that we had mostly focused on, which were the governor's races and secretaries of state races in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, those governorships remain in the hands of Democrats, which means that for 2024, regardless of who the Republican nominee is, and we'll talk about that too, that pro-democracy representatives, secretaries of state, attorneys general, and governors will be in charge. You know, Reed, I think one of the most important things that people who follow the Lincoln Project and who follow our work, whether you love us or hate us. Wait, 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 wait. Somebody hates us? I know. It's That's just impossible. I, I say nay. You know, 
every day Dan Bongino sends me a fruit basket. I just feel the love. <laughs> Dan Bongino's a fruit basket. He's a fruit basket. But look, folks, we made a very considered decision late in 21 to not look at this like a pack, to not look at this like a political committee in Washington, but to look out there and identify the races, identify the campaigns and the states where democracy would be on the ballot in 2024 and to go after the most existentially dangerous seats and candidates out there and to build a strategy that iterated off of what we did in 2020. And so that's why we looked at Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania and decided, doesn't matter if he looks like a long shot, we have to stop this guy because he is an election denier. He is a 1-6 terrorist. He is a funder of people who attended 1-6. He does not believe in any kind of small-D democratic principles. And by the way, the corollary of that also is if we can take Mastriano out of the picture, it helps Fetterman beat Dr. Oz. So we're leveraging our targeting and our messaging into a state that if you had had Doug Mastriano as governor in 2023 and 24, he would first off try to reverse the 2020 election, which would turn into a shit show of its own. And then in 24, he would declare that Trump won the state. He would tell his secretary of state, you will certify Trump. I don't care what the vote was. It was fraudulent. I'll do it. We went after those races in places like Michigan with the governor and with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, both of whom we helped get over the line. We went after Mark Fincham, the Secretary of State candidate in Arizona, who is a full-blown QAnon, Trump fanatic, Jan 6, a guy who has like every pathology of the MAGA psychosis on full display. I mean, and we're still wrapping up a lot of the results from last night, folks, but this was a good night for America. And we were and the states we targeted for this pro-democratic, small-D democratic effort led to big-D democratic wins. So let's talk a little bit, Rick, about how we do these things. Because one is that, you know, every campaign is different. And midterms are a different breed because you have, you might have an overarching narrative, which there's even a disagreement as to what that overarching narrative was this year. I think we probably have a belief in what it was. But you have multiple races in multiple states. You know, a third of the Senate is up, all 435 members of the U.S. House, a third of the governors. So there's basically hundreds of races over the course of the country. In a place like Pennsylvania, right, we understood that Josh Shapiro is a normal candidate. He's a sitting attorney general. Doug Mastriano, as you noted, is a white Christian anti-Semite seditionist. In that case, we understood what was at stake, which was as you like to say, never get caught in 2015 thinking. Just because this guy's crazy and has malicious intent, not just like he's a bad guy, but malicious intent that he could win. And we went in with a very specific message. You know, this is a guy who, while working at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, some 26 or so miles from Gettysburg, chose to dress up as a Confederate soldier in a picture with his colleagues, right? Call me crazy, but Call that me seemed crazy. off tone to me. Right. <laughs> so running against a man of the Jewish faith in a state where the Tree of Life synagogue had been brutally attacked and nearly a dozen people murdered, a state with a significant African-American population and a swing population in suburban areas around Philadelphia and in Allegheny County and Pittsburgh, you know, it's the true definition of a swing state. And we understood those. And so pull this apart a little bit for us, Rick, on the, who the Bannon line voters are, what we did in African-American communities and how the union, which the listeners have heard me just beat them 
about the head and neck for months now, all came together to make this stuff happen. Folks, if you have, haven't heard me talk about the Bannon line or read talk about the Bannon line yet, I don't know how many more times you're going to hear it in the next two years, but the number is a lot. What is the Bannon line? The Bannon line is a pool of voters that are people who are kind of like us. They're either former Republicans or Republicans who can't bring themselves to be in the horrible world of Trump and Trumpism. It's not a big number. It's not a huge cohort of voters who are going to change the Republican Party or save it, but they are people that are available to persuade in these elections. Steve Bannon actually coined the phrase, and you know, Steve hates us a lot, but when he said in 2020, if these guys can take three to eight percent of the Republican vote away from Trump, then Trump can't win. And you know, our response was, you know, hold my diet coke. We're gonna go after this. And so we have. And we've become very effective at targeting them and very effective at drilling down into getting soft Republican and independent-leaning conservatives to break away from bad candidates. And Doug Mastriano was one of the worst candidates I've ever seen in my life for a governor's race. I mean, he is so far outside the boundaries that even the RGA couldn't really bring itself to spend much money on him because he's so dangerous and so radical. And dangerous and radical is something that the Bannon line candidates that we've been able to scare people off of and push people away from exhibited in the 2022 election at scale. They were everywhere and they are some pretty dangerous and scary people. But Mastriano made it easy, as you mentioned, you know, by being basically a vicious anti-Semite, hiring people who run anti-Semitic websites to work for him. That was an easier lift in some ways than you know, even Tudor Dixon and Michaels in Wisconsin and in Michigan. Not that they were exact rock stars in the, in the field either. You know, so this is Rick, as we were talking about on a call with our team earlier today. This is what a campaign is supposed to do, whether or not it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, or elsewhere. Which is, you have an overarching message, an overarching belief system, which I think is even more important than message, because as they've heard me say message is a derivative of belief, which is we believe that American democracy is in peril and that this campaign was about the securing and defending of American democracy. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And so that was the core of what we said. Then you go in and you apply the kind of creative genius that you and your team have to drive that narrative forward. Then you have incredible political people like Trigvi Olson and Jeff Timmer, who ran our political strategy and Joe Trippi and Alex Shashlow, who ran our digital targeting, and then Angus and Jacqueline, who ran the union for us, right? And we should be clear about this, guys. I want to just say it for the union, the two leaders of the union for us literally built a nationwide organization with 70 partners and more than 60,000 volunteers for the price of a website. That was all we gave them. Yep, we gave them, a, we gave them some support in setting up a website and go and they did it and that's a campaign rick that's what a campaign is supposed to be that is what a real campaign does and look folks there aren't a lot of organizations that start out where we started out which was as a messaging and media organization that keeps doing the messaging in the media and i modestly will say we do it better than i think almost anybody out there but also builds a nationwide grassroots army of 62,000 volunteers who were punching so far above their weight class in this campaign that the story deserves to be told much better than we can do it on on a one-hour podcast. But Jackie and Angus, who run the union, 
absolutely just crushed the hell out of mobilizing voters. And right now, folks, if you go to jointheunion.us, if you're hearing this podcast, they're still working in Nevada to do ballot curing and other things to make sure that this thing doesn't go out of control with Republican lawsuits or Republican claims of voter fraud. I mean, the work they've done and the work they're doing and the work they will do is absolutely fantastic. So, Rick, let's talk about the thematics of this, this campaign and how it relates to the types of people that made up a, when I say winning coalition, and sometimes you win by not losing. And American democracy won a lot in this election because it defeated the types of people, not all of them, and I'm going to get to that in a second, that it needed to beat. But, you know, if you looked at some of the exit polling surveys, you know, it was abortion, the economy, inflation, gas prices, immigration, crime, and what we were being told for pretty much the last, say, six, eight weeks. And it's funny how quickly, even if we don't want to, we can get sucked into this, is that the Democratic momentum had stalled, that Republicans were marauding across the countryside with their talk of inflation and crime. And it turns out that once again, the pollsters were wrong, which is a whole show in and of itself. But that, you know, you saw a couple of people say, well, but nobody mentioned democracy. You know, people ask us a lot, why don't you focus group all your ads? Why don't you poll every single question? Why don't you poll all your issues? Well, folks, because it doesn't work. <laughs> Hate to tell you, it doesn't work. You can derive some qualitative data from a focus group, but if you make decisions based on that and not from faith and belief and not from a commitment to what you believe is the real issue, you're not going to win. It doesn't matter how many times you focus group and add. It doesn't matter how many times you, you rewrite and change you know, a word. You know, take the word happy and make it the word glad. You know, it will never get you home with real voters. And we went out this year and we made the pro-democracy message part of the campaign, despite all of the Washington conventional wisdom being, as it usually is, completely freaking wrong about democracy. They had convinced themselves, or frankly, allowed themselves to be convinced by a lot of very skillful Republican PR folks in D.C. that by the end of this campaign, that the Dobbs decision meant nothing, and abortion wasn't an issue. One-six meant nothing, and it wasn't an issue. That democracy meant nothing, and it wasn't an issue. And the only thing they cared about was crime and gas prices. Well, it turns out that Dobbs was a huge driver, as we're starting to see from the exit polls, of younger voter turnout. And you know, you know, Reed, how hard it is to get younger voters to turn out for anything. It is the unicorn of political ground operations to get young voters to actually turn out. Well, we were able to turn out young voters in places like Dane County, Wisconsin, because, you know, we advertised to them with a great ad that our friend Leslie Jones from SNL helped us produce and just pounded it in there. And that was part of the margin of victory and the buffer. Governor Evers needed to win in Wisconsin. We know that was working because digitally speaking, we blanketed Wisconsin with those messages as we closed out this campaign. In Philadelphia, you know, our work with the African-American community there stretches back to 2020. In Detroit, where you guys met with the African-American faith community there repeatedly, and we worked in those communities to turn up African-American turnout to get it out there. In those places, again, we see a decisive role the messaging we use played in those races. And this year, 
we had to operate not on the, you know, the $100 million we raised in 2020, but on a much smaller number. But I will put our performance side by side to any other super PAC or campaign committee or campaign for effectiveness and reach and the ability to change the narrative and the ability to change voters. Because I'll tell you, folks, when you see what Mitch McConnell spent right now to be down one seat, it is almost a billion dollars. With all his committees and all the campaigns. Yeah. I mean, you spend a billion dollars to get it all wrong and then go in and, you know, complain about candidate quality and all the other stuff. But Rick, I mean, I think you make an interesting point, which is we saw Gen Z for the first time make their presence felt in a real campaign. The millennials also, you know, Dobbs did, I think, drive a lot of people. You saw numerous images of long lines on college campuses, which I think was heartening to see. Solid African-American turnout in key places. And again, those Bannon line voters who just really in a lot of places don't want anything to do with the nuttiest of the nutty. And I think it's interesting, too, Rick, is that let's take the U.S. House, for example. Most of the Republicans that lost or were expected to win were in places that they actually had to compete. They had to compete against a Democrat, most of the time a qualified Democrat, a good candidate. And most of their majority will come from places in states where they have so gerrymandered the thing that only the nuttiest of the nutty could win. But they're nominating the nuts even in those marginal districts and maybe not getting blown out, but losing. Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, right? These were huge targets. And by the way, those are two of my absolute favorite people in the politics of today. And those were hard races, but they ran really well. And also remember, the two congressional seats where conservative Republican Liz Cheney went in personally to campaign on their behalf. If you want to talk about something to infuriate the MAGAs, that's the magic right there. Right. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit, Rick, about what the Republican Party is now. I want to get to Trump in a second, but I want to talk about the Republican Party now, because no matter where, probably in the country or certainly in Washington, D.C., the members of a legislative body, a Republican elected official, they are more MAGA now than they were on Monday. The Republican conference in the U.S. House will be significantly more Trumpy come January 3rd, whether they're in the majority or not, than they were this Congress and in the past. Mitch McConnell's conference will be more Trumpy than it was prior to Tuesday. So give us a little sense of where the party goes here, because now there's the gnashing of teeth and the renting of garments amongst the, as you call them, the conservative cruise ship crowd of it's time to move on. Trump, you know, is a weight around our shoulders. Now it's time to turn the page. Fox and the Rupert properties, Wall Street Journal and New York Post are throwing shade at him. So, Rick, what's going to happen to the Republican Party from here? The Republican Party is about to do what it tried to do in late 2015 and early 2016. And they're going to get very persuasive, smart people, and they're going to sit around tables and they're going to say, this is how we take out Trump. And you and I sat around those tables in 2015 and early 2016 and 2017 and 2018, listening to very smart people, very well-intentioned people say things like, well, Ron DeSantis is a real conservative. And by Ron DeSantis, substitute Jeb Bush back then, or Ted Cruz. And our voters need a winner who will definitely be a conservative leader and they'll 
reflect our values and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? You know what we learned? It's even more true today. The average Republican voter is not a conservative. The average Republican voter is authoritarian curious, and Trump pokes a little piece of their amygdala with his outrageousness and his transgressiveness and his cruelty and everything else that defines him. And so the harm that he's done to the old Republican brand is now generational. We're coming up on the second generation of Republican voters who buy into the Trump model. And so DeSantis will have a lot of support from wealthy donors and from you know the rich Lowry's of the world. And what will happen is Trump will hold on to 15% of the Republican base or 20% or 25% or maybe more. But it only takes a couple percent to go into Iowa and have a compelling advantage against Ron DeSantis. It only takes a couple percent to go into New Hampshire or South Carolina because Trump understands showmanship. He understands cruelty. He understands the performance art bullshit of the Republican Party as it is today. And the fundamental underpinning of this is the party doesn't believe in anything. You know, these Republicans who say, oh, Glenn Youngkin, man, he's the best. He'll be the future. Well, they may love Glenn Youngkin's tax policy, but to survive politically, what has Glenn Youngkin been doing the last few weeks? Going out and endorsing crazy people like Carrie Lake. What has Ron DeSantis been doing? Going out and endorsing crazy people like Doug Mastriano. And all these folks have, you know, they recognize that the Republican base is an alien creature they cannot control. It does not look or sound or think like them. But to win it, they have to continue to kiss Trump's ass because that base still loves him. There will be a lot of wish casting in the coming weeks about it's time to get past Donald Trump. It's time to stop worshiping Trump. It's time to move on. We heard it with every Republican candidate in 2016. It's sort of like the life cycle of a star, right? To get astronomical for a second, right? You know, it went from a star, a normal star, to a red giant, right? It puffed itself out. Now that corona has blown off and it's left with this hot, dense, white dwarf star that's going to be more crazy, more extreme. And again, Rick, let's talk a little bit about the potential chaos of a leadership fight in a Republican House conference where Kevin McCarthy doesn't have 30 or 40, quote, normal Republicans. He's got two, and he's one of them. And you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene out there and Paul Gosar and Thomas Massey and Jim Jordan and all these other goons being like, Kevin, this is your fault. It's not Mr. Trump's fault. This is your fault. Because they're certainly not going to take the blame on their own. They can't believe that their type of people would lose, right? So there's always that inference of cheating, right, of fraud. So talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. Look, the last person you want to be in Washington today is Kevin McCarthy. He is under every kind of pressure and stress and blame because Kevin went out and raised a huge amount of money from corporate donors. And he told those corporate donors, look, I'm going to be a normal guy. I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to have a big majority. So you better take care of us. You better write a check because I'm going to have 40 seats in the majority. I'm going to win X number of seats on election day and I'll have a 40 seat majority. And you better be with me. Well, as of this moment, while we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, Kevin has a one, maybe two seat majority. and. The degree to which Kevin is going to be under the gun from the crazies, as you point out, 
the whole mutant parade of Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these other people, they live to cause chaos. They live to cause trouble. They live to make the establishment suffer. And Kevin is the establishment. And while Trump is sticking with him for now, as I tweeted earlier today, it's like, if you're Kevin McCarthy, don't have coffee with Elise Stefanik. Don't stand near a window if you're around Matt Gates. Don't stand in front of Steve Scalise on an escalator. These people are all looking to take the big job, and they're looking to do so in a way that is a MAGA base satisfying way. They're not trying to compromise. They're not trying to find any sort of middle path. They're not trying to do the things on Kevin's, you know, bullshit commitment to America, which is like microwave Frank Luntz leftovers. They want chaos. They want impeachment trials and show trials and Hunter Biden laptop investigations. And, you know, they want to go after, you know, imaginary critical race theory, all these things. They tell us what they're going to do. They tell us exactly what's going to happen. So we know that when McCarthy says, no, I want to do commitment to America and a tax cut versus Hunter Biden's laptop, we know where that's going to go. Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to say, you need me for every vote. If I'm not with you, the MAGA caucus isn't either. Bend the knee. And he will. Well, and, you know, speaking of bending the knee, he spends a lot of time on his knees, near as I can tell, bending them anyway. I mean, he was the one who, after January 6th, went down to Mar-a-Lago, stood there proudly next to Donald Trump, and both explicitly and implicitly gave the high sign to Republicans everywhere that it was okay to, you know, stay in line with this guy, as opposed to if he had said, no, Mr. President, I'm not coming down there. You're over. You're done. And he wouldn't do that. But now, Rick, you know, you'll have this dynamic where McCarthy's fighting off the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh, my. You know, the Elise Stefanics are coming for him. Steve Scalise might not know it yet, but he's probably out of a job, at least as a leadership job. And then, you know, you go across the Capitol and you've got McConnell who's trying to figure out, well, one, am I going to be minority leader again? Am I going to be majority leader by a seat? Now he's got Rick Scott gunning for him, right? He's going to have a conference with now J.D. Vance in it, added to Josh Hawley, Cotton, Cruz, all of them, who will do whatever it is they want, regardless of whether or not Mitch wants it, because they're maybe not looking to 24, Rick, but maybe to 28, because these are all, relatively speaking, young guys. They're all in their 40s. They got no hurry. So they can go, you know, they can go do whatever it is they want to do. They can go pal around with Marge and, you know, the, the crew uh, and try and pick up some more of that MAGA love. Um, so what does McConnell do now? Well, look, McConnell is, is he's another guy who is right now in hell. Um, and, and the reason he's in hell is not only the closeness of the count in the Senate. We don't know where that's going to land yet, folks. It's still Georgia's still out there and Nevada's still out there. But McConnell can operate very well with a few seats. It's much harder with a tie ball game. And that empowers people to make his life much more difficult. But what really I think is going to make McConnell's life difficult is all his friends are gone. The Portman types, the Thune types, the Burr types, those guys are gone. It's over. You know, Saxby, all those people that have been gone for a few years even, or 10 years now, McConnell is like the last priest of a dying religion. And the fact that now Peter Thiel's ambassador, J.D. Vance, is a U.S. senator or will be a U.S. senator, McConnell, when the Tea Party guys came up, he cracked the whip hard. Cracked the whip on 
Marco and Cotton and Cruz and the rest of them and said, you fucking play nice, you behave, and you might get a chairmanship someday. If you act like crazy Tea Party lunatics, you get nothing. And so the Senate today looks a lot more like the J.D. Vance, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul wing than it does the old traditional Republican wing. And while they like that, it also means that McConnell is less able to pull off power plays as he used to be. I will say this, there are two enormous risk factors in the Senate right now, and they are the candidates that no labels enthusiastically loves. They are Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Both of those people are going to cut deals with Mitch McConnell. Count on it. Start preparing yourselves emotionally that ostensible Democrats are going to be part of Mitch McConnell's coalition. And while Cinema, I don't think, is motivated to change parties, Manchin, if pushed hard enough, would. And I think you're going to see that this bet on these alleged centrists who are actually McConnellites with a D after their name, they ought to be called to account for it, frankly. Are you surprised that with all of the red mirage stuff that the right wing media ecosystem and so much of the political system was pushing and so much, frankly, of the mainstream media was just eating up with a spoon that for the most part, with the exception of Carrie Lake, who admittedly has not been defeated yet, although she was musing about how it was stolen from her last night, that most of these Republicans have conceded, actually said, no, I didn't win. I am a little surprised when Lee Zeldin calls and politely, you know, says I lost to Kathy Hochul in New York. It says that they understand the limits of the bullshit of voter fraud allegations, that they understand that there is no, you know, secret democratic voter fraud mechanism that's going to win races all the time and that and that they understand what's happening. And the degree to which many of them have conceded, I won't say it's heartening, but it is a sign of the that they have accepted some degree of reality about their circumstances. So let's go from some degree of reality, Rick, to the land of unreality, which resides most of the time in the bridal suite at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. So Trump, not surprisingly, has started lashing out by several media accounts, was throwing ketchup bottles, metaphorically, maybe literally, you know, about how everything was going down. You know, these were bad candidates, yada, yada, yada. We've seen that before, that none of this is a surprise. But now, whereas a week ago, when Trump took the stage and said, Ron, desanctimonious, right? And everybody was saying, okay, Ron's going to sit this one out. Ron's going to sit this one out. Now with the last night's shellacking, you know, it's like, well, maybe there is room for Ron. Maybe there is room for a run. Maybe Trump is beatable. Now he said he teased us on Monday. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to do it tonight, but look forward to next Tuesday, November 15th. One, do you think he'll run? Two, do you think it'll be next week? And three, will other people get in? I am absolutely certain he's going to run. There are signs that are both public and signs that we pick up from our various networks of people around that world that he has hired a very, 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 very smart, very effective Republican strategist named Chris LaSavita. You know, we all know Chris. He's a very capable guy. Folks, you need to prepare yourselves mentally. Chris LaSavita is not Brad Parscale. You're not going to catch him outside his house drunk being shoved into a cop car. He's a squared away, buttoned down guy. He's smart. He's effective. He's tough. That hire 
tells me a lot about the seriousness with which they are taking the coming election. There are a million reasons why he's going to run, including avoiding indictment, making money, getting back in the spotlight, having his ego stroked. And there's also a part of it where he wants to break anyone he considers a political opponent. And, you know, Ron DeSantis is right now the leading anti-Trump candidate in the country. Dare I even say Ron DeSantis is the leading never-Trump candidate in the country right now. Trump hates anyone, anyone who dares to oppose him. And because of that, he believes these sort of like the reentry into the race is going to be something that validates him and teaches people a lesson about how dare you oppose Trump. I do think he's getting in next week. I think he wants to play beat the clock on the indictments. I think he wants to play beat the clock on other entries into the race. And I think that there's a, a motivation for him to shut off everybody else's money early and make DeSantis and others depend only on major corporate dollars and not on grassroots small dollar donors. And that is something that's not a bad strategy, frankly. It's not an ineffective strategy. And finally, do I think other people are going to get in? Sure. Why wouldn't you? You know, you take a couple punches, you end by bending the knee to Trump, you move on. Look, Lindsey Graham in the campaign said some of the most vicious things about Donald Trump and became one of his advisors. That's the calculus in their head, is that you can kick his ass and then kiss his ass and you'll be fine. And so all that will do is train another generation of Marco Rubios. You know, Trump will break their brain and then they will tweet elliptical Bible verses and pretend that they're fine, but they never will be again. But I look, I think there's a possibility that a lot of these people who are eyeballing 28, they want to do a little road test. They want to get out there and stretch their legs a little bit. They want to be in a position to have Trump direct fire against DeSantis or to run up plus points with Trump as de facto allies during the campaign so that they can get cabinet positions or what have you later. Look, the next two years are going to be unbelievably busy and loud. And, you know, you don't get to raise your goats and I don't get to go fix my airplanes until we get rid of this guy at the end of 24. Well, and, you know, one thing that you noted this morning, because you have this ability to take a look at the right wing social media ecosystem and talk a little bit about that vis-a-vis -vis the D.C. leaders we've mentioned of McCarthy and McConnell and, you know, the pretenders to the throne like a DeSantis or a Yunkin vis-a-vis -vis Trump? Well, I think that the idea that anybody is going to emerge from that the current cohort other than DeSantis as the person that the right-wing infrastructure gets behind is still premature. You and I have been around this rodeo enough times to see that there's an inevitable candidate who's absolutely positively, definitely positively going to win the primary. Scott Walker, Tim Pawlenty, Jeb Bush, and nothing can stop them. That's where DeSantis is right now even taking Trump out of the picture. Look, I think that the right-wing media today, they are angry at everybody. They're angry at Trump, but they don't want to say it. I've seen a few of them tweeting things like, well, Trump's advisors misled him, which is code for he's uncontrolled and uncontrollable, and oh shit, what are we going to do? And I do think there's a certain degree of gentry Republicans, the cruise ship guys, and the Fox folks who are coming out and saying, Trump hurt us. He caused this election to go sideways. His reemergence on the scene changes the political chemistry in the country, which it has. And that chemistry has not, it is far from a normal blood test at this point, right? Correct. And because of all that, there's a sense, I think, right now of anticipation that, you know, when he gets in, 
Will the thing we think is going to happen happen? Maybe, which is the, the state parties that are still in Trump's control will clear the field. The 2024 primary will essentially disappear. And, you know, we will spend two years battering against Trump again as a country. And the Republican Party will once again be a place where the loyalty tests and the purges and all the other stuff, it's really going to change the ball game for how everything works out. Well, and that was, you know, it was interesting to go back a couple of days to Trump's rally in Ohio on Monday night, where we watched this right side broadcasting network, which to anyone listening, it's like listening to Bannon's podcast. It will within several minutes begin the process of melting your brain. And those people were all like, Ron DeSantis better stay out of it. You know, he wouldn't be here without Trump. Bob Paduchik, who is chair of the Ohio Republican Party, a guy I go back to the 2000 George W. Bush campaign, who is now fully 100 percent in the tank for Trump, you know, is all about the guy. Right. And Ohio is not a small state. As we talked about, the Iowa and New Hampshire parties will never give up their caucus or primaries. Right. It's just too much of a thing. But the South Carolina guys might. The Nevada guys might. Uh, and then, you know, the Florida guys might or and then before you know it, like it doesn't really matter whether you're on the race or not. You've got a bunch of resolutions saying, you know, we by acclamation dedicate our delegates to Donald Trump. And I think that, Rick, there's a little part of me, too, that there's no small amount of Putin-esque behavior in Trump, I think, nowadays when it comes to the GOP, which is if I can't have it, nobody can. Because remember, he's not really a Republican. He doesn't really care about anything. Is he upset that people lost last night? He is because it makes him look bad. He doesn't care about policy or any of that other crap because it doesn't mean anything to him. So, you know, this is something that George Conway said when he was on the podcast this summer, which is Trump will get in even if he doesn't win, which, you know, I think that he is imminently beatable, but we shouldn't put any carts before any horses. But regardless of the outcome, he will wreck things in two years as he's doing it. Absolutely. And folks, Trump is the ultimate nihilist. It is only about him. It is only about him. And when he's thinking about this race, it's for his ego and his wallet. It's not for America. It's not for the Republican Party. You know, remember, the reason that Reince Priebus made a mistake that was the equivalent of invading Russia in the winter in 2016 and 2015, of saying, oh, God, if Trump leaves, he'll run as an independent and kill us and kiss the ring, was because Trump is a guy who believes in nothing except Trump. And they didn't want him out there wild and free, starting a new party or running on an independent line. Once you give in to a blackmailer like Trump, you are always going to give in to a blackmailer like Trump. They're stuck with him at this point. And no matter what he does, Trump could savage the GOP. Let's just say for a moment, Ron DeSantis gets in the race. And somehow or another, Trump stumbles a couple times. DeSantis starts winning primaries, and Trump just drops out and runs as an independent. Guess what? That makes it impossible for Ron DeSantis to win the presidency. Trump always has a gun to their heads as long as he's alive, and he's been willing to use it since 2015. We should know that by now. It's always been about him. It's about power, money, ego, all of it. None of that's changed. It's probably only magnified as he feels increasing pressure politically, financially, legally, and every other way. Rick, I want to thank you for joining us on this post-election wrap-up. Before we go, where can folks find The Enemies List, your new podcast, and where can they find you? Well, The Enemies List is available where all fine podcasts are sold. It's on Apple, Spotify, Google, everywhere. And I'm on Twitter at the Rick Wilson, and the same with Instagram. 
All right, gang, as always, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, Rick. Get after it. Oh, God, I'm not going to do TikTok dances, Reed. I can't. At Reed Galen um, <laughs> and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Rick, once again, thanks for joining me. Everybody else, get some sleep, have a nap, have a nice meal. Tomorrow we get back to work. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.